Uh, lots been going on most recently. Uh, I think, first of all, we want to let the people down in the Bahamas know that we're still thinking about the victims of Hurricane Dorian. It's uh, still awfully early in that process to think about rebuilding, but we want them to know that uh, the American home builders are paying attention and we'll be ready to help out however we can when the time is ripe. Yeah, and same with our brothers and sisters down in uh, in Houston with Tropical Storm Imelda. We know that from from what we've heard, it uh, looks like the flooding was devastating to uh, to the city of Houston and the Texas coast. So, as always, we stand prepared to help our members and, uh, and folks down there. Yeah, there's been a couple interesting developments for our listeners. Uh, recently, just last week, FHFA announced a $100 billion multifamily lending caps. We were pretty concerned about how that might play out. We thought that there'd be some pretty serious impediments to multifamily financing if they did it the wrong way. Well, thankfully, our input into FHFA uh, bore some fruit. And although they did put more things under the cap, they're not impeding in any way a multifamily development and construction for this year, and it looks like probably next year, too. Well, and I think that's critically important because, as you know, the administration has recently put out two reports uh, dealing with the future of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, as well as the uh, the larger housing finance system in this country. And we have some concerns with those reports. First and foremost is how they're going to treat multifamily. So in a, in a uh, a tenuous first step. We see the administration is going to go very cautiously here, at least on the multifamily side. And that's uh, good news again to, for our multifamily builders. You know, you and I spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks working on another multifamily, or largely a multifamily issue, and that's rent control. Uh, this is a subject that's really rearing its ugly head in many places around the country. We got involved in a rent control effort uh, out in California to try to uh, a couple of things. One is to to slow down this rent control craze that we sort of we started to see across the country. Uh, New York earlier this year passed a, a statewide rent control. We know New York City has had it for decades, but they decided to take that statewide. Last year, Oregon followed suit as well and passed rent control. Now we've seen California pass statewide rent control. We're hearing more and more whispers about it in states like Illinois or in Massachusetts. So we as an association uh, need to take this very seriously. I think there's a real threat to our home builders and new apartment construction. Yeah, I completely agree that the issue in California, that state is so extreme in its views right now that the California builders had to almost support rent control as a more viable, more practical, more livable option than some of the other things on the table. That tells you how crazy things are out there. Well, it's clear that the Sacramento government is missing the entire story of what, what truly is driving the housing affordability crisis or the rental crisis in this case, which is the lack of supply. Plain and simple, the regulatory environment in California is so out of control. The average home price is over $600,000. Rents are extremely high. Homelessness is at an all-time high in California. They want to throw a Band-Aid on it by putting on rent control when what we need to do is bring more units into the market. Well, I think it pretty much sums it up to say we're sitting here in Washington, D.C., and we're saying it's crazy somewhere else. That shows how high the bar is set. Well, we got a pretty interesting show today for our listeners. First, we're going to have Monty Mraz, who's a builder out in Minnesota, talk about some of the uh, really draconian plans, it sounds like to me, that the city of Minneapolis has in place to provide housing and housing affordability for its citizens. Well, as we see, as we at NHB uh, and our members across the country try to preach that local regulations really are uh, what it takes to lower the cost of homes and apartments across the country, we've got to be really careful when we see under the guise of affordability some of these draconian provisions that we're starting to see. And then we're going to have one of our economists, one of the really shining stars here on our staff in Washington, Rose Quint, 
who's going to talk about green components in housing. And shock of all shockers, I guess, turns out that the American consumer isn't interested in green components just for the sake of being green. They have to be economically and financially feasible. Isn't that amazing? I'm shocked. Shocked to find <laughs> gambling going on here. I think we, you know, we're starting to see this more and more where people want to just pass green or energy efficiency upgrades for the sake of doing it. What we have to remind people is that the American consumer is really who the target here is and that who's ultimately going to bear the cost of green building techniques. And the marketplace, will, when they demand it, our builders will put it into their products. Yeah, I think that the listeners are going to learn a little bit about that from Monty, too, when he talks about where Minneapolis is going with some of their uh, proposals going forward. But we got a great show, and let's get right down to it right now. Joining us now is Monty Mraz. He's the president of the Minnesota Metropolitan Contractors Association. And, you know, Jim, they got a lot going on up there with housing policy in uh, Minnesota. They have that new Minneapolis 2040 plan. One of the things we've been pointing to here in Washington, D.C., is how local communities are really trying to tackle the housing affordability crisis uh, and set the pace for other areas around the country. So we're happy to have Monty with us today to talk about what's going on up in Minnesota. Thank you for having me, Jerry. I live actually in Minneapolis in a condominium, and the issue here is more we're lacking in areas of housing. The inventory lacks in certain areas, and I think this is a pretty consistent model throughout the country. And I'm sure this type of process, as far as the way they're going to establish comprehensive planning, it went much deeper than what a typical comprehensive plan process would have been. Originally, they selected racial inequity as their primary goal to correct some racial inequity, which I thought was interesting when the whole thing started. As they went through the process, they realized that they also have a problem with affordable housing. Well, uh, imagine that. You know, they all they've done is increase the cost of building, and I think they've addressed some of those issues. We'll see how it works. You know, socially and politically, it's very controversial, and we're working hard to get our arms around it. As a, a member of the building community, you hate to say that you disagree with upzoning. Um, anytime there's a better opportunity or more opportunity, I should say, to develop, redevelop, and get greater density usually what we're looking for, right? I personally haven't gone through and established a plan or a business model or an attempt to uh, get involved with that development. Like I said, politically and socially, it's, it's going to be interesting to watch how this comes together. I, I, I look forward to it. Again, I, I, I want to try to stay positive about it because I think there is some opportunity for members of our association and our industry to find some better opportunities to create housing some of the things, as usual, that are difficult is they're trying to create a percentage of this has to be inclusionary. So those things are going to have to get worked through. I haven't seen a business model yet, or I haven't heard of anybody that has figured out a way that they can make this work. But like I said, they're looking to try to make it happen. So hopefully they'll work with us to create the right regulatory environment. That's really interesting, Monty. Just for background for the listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself, what kind of building you do, and a little bit about the, the local association there in Minneapolis. Our uh, local association, the, the Minnesota Metropolitan Contractors Association, is a group of small to medium-sized builders. And we've identified our group as Main Street and really connected to our communities. We embrace all contractors, both uh, you know, builders, developers, plumbers, electricians, everybody in our 
a little community is, is critical to the process of building and servicing the residents of homes in our communities. My background is in land development and construction. Started as a carpenter and moved through the process of building homes for major builders and for small local market builders. Today, I work with a company, probably 50% of our work is in commercial and mainly directed to some uh, senior living facilities and uh, healthcare remodel and new construction. Uh, and we also build single family homes and we also build vacation properties. That's very interesting. A pretty diverse background. Kind of pivoting back to uh, Minneapolis 2040, question for you. You talked about trying to satisfy some of the racial inequities that were happening in Minneapolis, but also the affordability issues that cropped up when they started looking a little bit deeper into the problem. What was contributing to the affordability issues you talked about? A lot of new residences built in Minneapolis have been of the rental condominium structure. And because it's newer construction, the price, the rental um, costs are, are a little higher than what would meet the affordability category. The other issue is we've got an aging population in these single-family neighborhoods. The new plan calls for zero single-family zoning. So that's a big deal because they're talking about going into all of these little neighborhoods throughout Minneapolis and saying, if you want to, you can take down that single residence on a 40-foot lot and put up a, a triplex. Some of the issues here that they're dealing with, of course, the neighborhoods are pushing back pretty hard. So there's some things in there that are going to have to get worked out, but they're adamant about trying to reduce the number of vehicles within their communities. I want to go back to one of the other points you made a few seconds ago, Monty, if you don't mind. And that is, you said that they're going to tell people that they can go into a neighborhood, buy a single family house, tear it down, and then build a triplex rental structure on the lot. What will that do to the values of the homes of the people who are living in these single family neighborhoods and have invested and built up their equity? And for most Americans, the equity in their home is the nest egg for retirement. Won't that have a negative impact? I believe so, and it goes back to the statement of, you know, socially and politically, there's a lot here that's controversial, and, and there are some pretty well-organized groups that are planning to fight all of those applications. So it'll be interesting to see how this works through. You know, Monty, one of the plans that the Minneapolis 2040 plan mentions is, is looking at new technologies to build affordably, whether it's 3D-printed homes or prefab, how are your rank-and-file builders approaching that? I'm a leader in our organization. I have yet put pen and paper to figure out if I can make this work for our organization. And I know that now that we're here and we're dealing with this, that there's probably going to be some work through our association to work with our members, see if there isn't something out there that'll make it happen. You know, we're going to have to look at modular and things that can come in. We talk about these neighborhoods that are 40-foot lots, and they're going to allow uh, that kind of density, you know, the, it would make the most sense to bring in, you know, the latest technology to put in product that is uh, easy to assemble and clean to, you know, to keep for safe opportunity working inside those uh, occupied neighborhoods. And they really think that they need to grow Minneapolis by a 1,000 housing units a year, which if they're going to use its existing land base, that's 38 square miles, they're going to need to upzone. I mean, it just clearly looks to them that that's how they're going to get another 1,000 residents a year. 
You know, Monty, one of the things we've always we're always curious about is who are the allies on this? Yeah. I know you said you're still looking at it and to see how it's going to be implemented. You talked about some of the neighborhood groups that are pushing back. We've looked across the country to find these YIMBY groups, the Yes in My Backyard, but it sounds like you've got a host of the traditional NIMBYs. Are there community activists or neighborhood activists that are pushing for this plan to come to fruition? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you understand the social and political scenario here in Minneapolis is extremely liberal. This is the, an agenda. I, I don't want to get on that, but, uh, in, in that position to make a call one way or the other. It doesn't sit well with a lot of us. Let me just put it that way. We're concerned. We want to try to uh, build and develop. And the minute they start talking about the major goal here is racial equity, I think that was a nice thing to put in first place is all. And though they have quite a bit of detail and quite a bit of information about how that is, they have really no basis to make some of this stuff happen. Like I said, I'm concerned. And I know there's a few that are, are concerned about it as well. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of questions yet to be answered with this plan. Monty, I hope you know that at NEHB, we have a whole staff here that analyzes these kind of plans, both from a practical basis, also from a political basis. We're here to help in any way we can, because it sure seems to me like allowing for higher density near metro stations, but then telling people who want to live and work in Minneapolis, if they want a single family house, they got to be 30, 35 miles out. That's no way to cut down on the use of automobiles and no way to help a transportation problem. There's a lot of things uh, that, in looking at this at a really high level, raise questions for me. And if you want me to pass this down to the staff, we'll do that. But NEHB would love to help your local association weather this storm and at least make sure that there's some common sense approaches uh, included in the end product. I certainly do appreciate that, Jerry. We do trust that NHB is there to support us and can give us advice in any way, shape, or form. And as we move through this, there's probably no better ally to have. I look forward to that opportunity as, like I said, if this is going to be the scenario, then we want to try to find the place that works best for us. It is kind of funny. One of the things I look at when I look at the documentation, they speak of adding jobs and diversity in the community by doing this and this plan is supposed to be supporting that opportunity and of course the picture that they show jerry as you know in most cases is a picture of construction workers now this plan is going to create a great and, and uh, high paying diverse jobs for everyone but you know what there's not a construction job i've ever had that didn't require me to have a pickup or some mode of transportation i didn't get there on a bike and i didn't take the light rail yeah, it's funny how there's no subway stations near construction sites. <laughs> and you know what? Uh, this is Minnesota. This isn't California. About half the time, it's too darn cold to ride the bicycle. We're going to struggle with a lot of things as we try to move through this. But again, uh, we're going to try to find the best opportunities for our members to benefit from a changing environment and, and hopefully some opportunity within these zoning changes. Well, we look forward to working with you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Monty Mraz. Monty, again, thanks for being with us. We look forward to helping you work through this problem. Great. Thanks, Monty. Thanks, gentlemen. Joining us now is one of NHB's stellar economists, Rose Quint, who's going to talk to us a little bit about green building and some of the green building components of housing. You know, Jerry, I'm looking forward to hearing what Rose has to say. One of the things that we find on Capitol Hill and one of the things we've been fighting for the last 
several years, more acutely uh, this week in particular, is this zeal on Capitol Hill, and it's a bipartisan problem that we have, which trying to drive more energy efficiency through the coach process. In fact, going as far as to putting the Department of Energy squarely into writing the energy codes in this country. Rose, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jerry. Well, the survey research shop here in the economics group at NHB conducts about 50 surveys every year, both of NHB members and also of homebuyers. Now, some of those surveys produce economic indicators for the industry. The best known of all is the housing market index, which measures builder sentiment, as you know. We conduct that one monthly, and it helps us forecast where the industry is going. Another example is our series on home buyer preferences. Every three or four years, we produce a new edition of a study that we call What Home Buyers Really Want. It's, it details what home buyers want in terms of size and features, layout, location, kitchen, windows. Um, we break down those results by income groups, age groups, racial groups, regions of the country, so that builders can really, really target their audience and understand the preferences of the particular subset of buyers that they're interested in. So uh, we get a lot of requests for these findings. So let me share with the audience some of those findings from the very latest edition of What Home Buyers Really Want, which we just released, by the way, in um, IBS, the 2019 International Builder Show. So some of the highlights are this. 86% of buyers prefer the kitchen and the dining room to be completely or partially open. 70% of buyers prefer the washer and the dryer to be on the first floor. 67% of them want high ceilings in the first floor of the home. 64% would like to buy that home in the suburbs. When asked about specific features of the home, the single most wanted feature by home buyers is a laundry room. A laundry room is something that more than 90% of buyers want to have in their next home. Also included in that top 10 most wanted out of more than 170 features listed in the survey are three green features, Energy Star rated windows, Energy Star rated appliances, and also an Energy Star rating for the entire home. Two outdoor features make it on that most wanted list, a patio a patio and exterior lighting, as well as two features that help the home buyer keep the home organized. And those are a walk-in pantry in the kitchen and storage space in the garage. We also see hardwood floors on the main floor and a double kitchen in the sink on this list. The study also sheds some light on buyers' level of concern for the environment. 68% of them said they're concerned they would like an environment-friendly home, but they simply would not pay more for such a home. On the other hand, 14% said they're concerned and would pay more for an environment-friendly home. So those findings tell you that most buyers simply won't pay more for the abstract idea of helping the environment. But when asked if they would pay extra for a home that saved them $1,000 a year in utility costs, we got a completely different answer. They said they would pay an average of almost $9,000 in order to achieve that level of savings. So the takeaway here is for builders to advertise homes with energy efficiency features in terms of the savings, the, the money they will save the home buyer, and not simply as an environment-friendly home, because that abstract idea simply does not move buyers or most buyers. And that right there is just a sampling of the survey research that we do. If you are a single-family builder, a remodeler, a multifamily builder, a 55-plus builder, a land developer, and you would like to participate in any of our ongoing surveys to track your segment of the market, please email me at rquint at nahb.org. Thank you.
Rose, thanks for joining us today. Fascinating work that you and the economics team do to help bolster what we talk about on Capitol Hill, but also what we talk about in the press about really what's driving the marketplace and where policymakers should focus rather than some of the, the more esoteric ideas out there. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes episode six of Housing Developments. I want to thank you for listening in. Again, this is Jerry Howard. Thanks very much for being here. This is Jim Tobin. Talk to you next time.